Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Our discussion today will revolve around the Security Operations Center, its role, challenges, success factors, with a special focus on how to effectively scale up for the different roles. I'm delighted and honored to have James Rizler, Senior Manager, Cisco Learning and Certifications with me as the guest. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. So, Jim, as we recognize, the Security Operations Center is at the heart of an organization's cyber defense system. At a high level, the primary role of the SOC is to protect the organization against cyber attacks. So it's imperative that highly skilled and motivated personnel are working in these centers. Before we get into the details of SOC operations and relevant skill sets, let's talk a little bit about you. Please share with listeners some highlights of your professional journey. All right, Phil, thank you very much again, Dave. Really appreciate it. It's great to be here. I started my security journey back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was a route switch and network server guy, and I was doing a lot of instruction on networking, specifically with Cisco Solutions. I was asked to come up to speed on teaching the old PICS firewall. So I started that, and then that started my journey down the road where I got involved with different things like voice over IP, contact center security, and then and just it kept evolving from there. Before, in 2010, I joined Cisco and started leading the efforts in the training development wrapped around security. I spearheaded the cyber ops certification, been focused a lot on NIST 800-181 and DOD 8570, which is now transitioning to 8140. So those are the types of things I've been working on. I look at cyber and I break it down into there's network engineers, which is kind of how I was. I came along, focused like on VPN technology, firewalls and securities and VLANs, et cetera. And then there's people that work in a SOC, which I call them the gatekeepers. The castle's been built, and now they got to go find and protect the castle against threats, both internal and external. Excellent. Makes a lot of sense. So, Jim, for the benefit of our listeners, many of whom may not have a good insight on SOC, let's give them a little bit of an overview of SOC. Why don't you start? And if I want to plug anything in, I will. All right. Well, I think the SOCs came out of the necessity of what a NOC, a network operations center. And they started pushing NOCs to do more and more specific security skills that 
the knock, some knock people were like, oh, okay, I can transition over to this. I can start developing and writing tools to find these threats. I can take on snort signatures and start developing snort signatures and looking through databases. So I, I think that they kind of eventually separated off because of the necessity and the breadth and depths of attacks we face today. So I look at a SOC today, primarily there's really a look at as two types of SOCs, those that are threat oriented, that are looking for threats, and those that are oriented to policies and procedures and risk management. So, you know, some companies just want a SOC so they can check the box off. Oh, we have a SOC, they follow, make sure that we're follow our HIPAA compliance and all of our compliances and boom, check. And then there's some SOC out there that literally go on the offensive that are following other, you know, leading threat hunters out there, finding the latest threats and then taking those threats and going back and seeing if they've been successful in their organization or not. Absolutely. And thank you for saying that. I'm so big, even in my, in my book, as well as in the talks that I give, that we have to go beyond checking the box. We have to be very substantive in our approach to security. We have to be proactive. Whatever we do, we have to do it well. So, uh, you know, coming back to SOC operations, as you said, Security Operations Center function to monitor, prevent, detect, investigate, and respond to cyber threats around the clock. There are lots of challenges in the SOC role. I had a guest speaker a couple of episodes back who talked about a high level of burnout because a lot of the work is highly manual and tedious. So there are new platforms that are emerging to automate some of the tedious work. So the SOC analysts can stay excited and can find a fun in their jobs. I can see why he would talk about the excitement because I think it's exciting to uh, analyze and see what kinds of threats are coming or what kind of threats could happen. So there are various aspects to the role that could be an attraction to future security professionals. And uh, Jim, when we were having our planning meeting, we kind of agreed that we want to focus this discussion on the skill sets that need to be in place for effective stock operations. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, let's just talk about the first, the, the front line of a, of a SOC out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. These are what we call eyes on glass. They're sitting in, imagine a room with a bunch of screens. They have screens on their desktop. They're looking at the organizational screens. They're looking at third-party screens that are providing them intelligence. And they're literally generating tickets all the time. So inbound event comes in, triggers something off. They, they basically have to go triage that. They have a, the clock starts right there. They're front line, so the clock starts. They have to capture the five tuple of information. What's the source? What's the destination IP? What's the protocol, et cetera? They have to basically start logging this. Have they seen this before? They have to go back and look through their databases. Have they seen it before? If they haven't, then they open up a ticket and they probably get it to the next tier up. So as you start your journey into the SOC, you're going to do time on the front line where where burnout does happen. You're in there looking at events all day. It's kind of tedious, but you're thinking about the future of learning and mastering skills 
that you can jump from device device, whether it be IoT device, to a switch, depending upon the vendor, be able to capture data and look at the data and understand how that vendor brings that data together and then turn it in and normalize it into your system. So your skills have to continue to grow and grow and grow. You're not necessarily a guru in networking, but you're what I call jack of all trades, master of none. You have a little bit, you're an inch deep and a mile wide because you can jump on to different devices and be able to handle those. And as you get, you build up those skills, you get to the next level, you're now doing research. You're now basically taking that threat that's been opened up and then saying, okay, not only are we seeing this, but who else is seeing this? What does it look like? What is its end goal? And what are the defenses against it? Is this just a distraction? Is there a secondary thing? Has somebody actually executed this attack inside of our network? If so, do we have to notify management? So as you said, those different levels there, the, the response, you know, it's always think of it before, during, and after the attack. So is the attack going on now or has it already occurred? What's the triage that needs to occur? Who needs to be involved and what do you need to communicate out to the organization? And sometimes you might have to bring in outside resources to help you. Absolutely. Uh, talking about notifying management, I have a question for you. So, you know, when we read about major breaches and why they happened, often the reason put forward is that the company that was breached, their personnel received the threat intelligence but did not react to it promptly, did not send it on to the appropriate people. In other words, I'd like your thoughts on how should threat intelligence be managed, be governed from logging it to acting on it? What are some best practices out there? Well, I think every organization has its own perspective on best practices. I've actually worked and sat on our front line of our SOC and I've seen inbound incidents come in and organizations basically said, that's not critical to us. And that was back related to the SQL attack. And yet, as the organization that I was working with was basically trying to notify them, this is important to you. You do have these devices, but the management team didn't really consider it a high priority. If you look back at one of the most successful attacks that impacted a lot of people with their credit cards, that retail organization was getting alert about the intrusion on their network, but somebody went and investigated and said it was a false positive. So I think that my point is you have to get down and find out really what to your organization is a false positive and what's not a false positive, what's a true positive indicator. And the dividing line about in your tracking database, in your logging system, in your communication process about what's critical to communicate. I think I'd rather err, I'd rather over communicate and be wrong than under communicate and that for it to be successful. And I think in that large retail organization, they decide not to communicate and it was a true attack going on and nobody was aware of it and they didn't have the defenses for it. So I guess on false positives, I would say that in that attack, you would say, okay, here's the potential outcome. If this is a real true event, here's what it could look like and to the organization. 
here's the risk to the organization. So having that risk indicator and risk flag, even when it's a false positive, allows our, the leadership and the executives to make a decision, yes, we don't want to research this, or yes, we want to know more. We want to put somebody on this. And it's just the time and the events that are going on right now. It's, um, we're all under such a lot of pressure to, to do these investigations and, and limited resources. There are truly not enough people working in these socks. They are overworked, and that's why you're seeing burnout. Yes, that's exactly what I'm hearing. Going back to that episode I was talking about where I had Thomas Kinsella of Tynes, who worked in the SOX operations for 12 years. Then he developed a platform that is helping automate some of those jobs that the SOX folks do. So I'll share with the listeners some stats that came out of a study that company did. It's called the Voice of the SOC Analyst. The top five time-consuming tasks came out to be reporting, monitoring, intrusion detection, detecting, and finally, operations. But going back to what you were talking about, Jim, about the different roles and, you know, to kind of generalize, you know, you have to do the analysis very carefully, the threat analysis, you have to communicate, you have to communicate effectively. And effective communication is really about clearly laying out why you'd consider this to be a threat for that particular organization, because you're trying to, in a, in, a, in a way, convince the leadership so they would analyze further, take necessary action. So at one level, you need to have very good communication skills. At the other, uh, at the other end, you need to have very strong technical skills. Often, as an educator, I have found these two skills don't go well together. People who are strong technically often are not the greatest communicator and vice versa. What are your thoughts? Oh, 100%. So one thing I didn't think about, it just kind of came to my head, so I apologize, but up front to the listeners out there, but playbooks. Playbooks inside of SOCs are critical because that tells you the quality assurance of your process. How do you go through analyzing that attack? How do you go through deciding whether that attack is something that you need to communicate up? And analysts have to develop those playbooks and then refine it. And it's a, it's a kind of reiterative process. You kind of, kind of got to keep tweaking it and learning and reading about attacks. So there you write to what you're just saying. Not only you're a technical skill, but you also got to think about how to communicate that out to the business, how to take that streamline of technical jargon and turn it into risk, business, processes and long-term impact to the organization. And think about that. And that all starts, in my mind, with the playbook. And then out through the communication process of the organization. So yeah, that's the challenge too, is finding people that have those specific skill sets that can, that can wear many hats. That's why I said inch deep, mile wide. And we don't know today what that SOC analyst or investigator is going to look like tomorrow because it's the game is changing so fast on us. So today you're playing Monopoly. Tomorrow you could be playing another game, Risk, or something else. Yeah, the game is changing. The technologies are evolving. So the ability to you know quickly ramp up your skill sets, to the ability to adapt to new technological platforms, plus having a very good sense of the business, sense of the organization. So 
it it is all leading to something that I uh, once again I emphasize a lot is a holistic approach to cyber cyber education. There is the technical side, there is the managerial, there is the governance side, there is the people side, and we have to find a way of instilling these different knowledge areas within students. So let's talk about students. And in that context, again, going back to our planning meeting, you you made a distinction between the analysts and the engineers, the security engineers versus the security analysts. How should somebody decide whether they would like to follow the track of an engineer or the track of an analyst? Maybe that's that's the starting question and you can take it from there. Oh, great question. I think interest and where your passion lies, because if you're doing something that you're passionate about, it, you're not really showing up to work. You're, you're getting paid for something you love to do. Engineers like to think about the design problems, the providing the services and solutions out to the customers, aka the people that work in that corporation organization on the network and the ability to provide them with, with what they need at that moment. Uh, and then as technology, deploying new technologies and migrating them too, which I've done hundreds of times. Now, if you transition to somebody who is in a SOC, they're taking something that's completely already built and then thinking about it as, okay, did the engineer do all the pieces necessary? When they set up the site to say VPN, what encryption scheme did they use? Is that encryption scheme vulnerable? How do they have it deployed? Do they have secondary authentication on there? What's the pre-shared key length, et cetera? And they're, they're thinking about, is that vulnerable to attack? And what can I log off of that event in that VPN tunnel to make sure that that VPN tunnel is not susceptible to attack? So they're taking and looking at a house that's already built and looking at all the vulnerabilities. Could that house you know, burn down? Is it susceptible to a flood? Where are all the risk points in that organization? And where do we have to monitor to keep that organization secure? So I think both are interesting challenges and it's just where your passion lies. Both require two sets of different sets of skills that you gotta develop. One, you're, you're learning new skills to, to deploy, to engineer and design. And the other side, you're basically taking a design that's already done and then trying to find all the potential weak spots in it that the attacker can do. So you're out researching the latest and greatest attacks and then taking that mindset and coming back and saying, okay, if I were an attacker coming back at this organization, what have we not done in this organization that is making us more vulnerable? Do we have one flat network where our POS system is sitting on the same network as our servers? No, or yes. You know, we know an organization that did that, but at the time, were they asking questions like that and challenging the organization to think differently about security? So it's a, it's a completely different mindset in my take, uh, but both, you know, if you're passionate about, you know, finding puzzles and undoing puzzles, both of them could be, you know, very valuable, interesting careers. Excellent. <clears throat> in fact, let me share another interesting finding from the voice of, the SOC analyst report, the top three skills needed to succeed as an analyst, they came out to number one, learning to code, number two, learning computer forensics techniques, and number three, knowing how to operationalize MITRE attack. So those were the three things that came out at the very top 
off the list. Jim, reactions, thoughts you'd like to add to that? Yeah, so 100% agree with those. Those are definitely up there because as, like I said, back to the beginning of the, the thing, you're frontline. Now you're moving to different roles inside of the SOC. And as you move up, you're taking on more and more challenges. You're going to need the ability to develop and code and code to basically go find those threats, to scan through databases, to scan through systems, to generate things that can help you find those attacks. So right there, that's back to your coding there. So that's a unique skill set. Engineers, in the future, they're going to need to code. As they deploy things, routers, no more command line stuff, that's rapidly disappearing. You're going to see more DevOps in the engineering environment. So both are going to need to have coding skills and those abilities. You mentioned two other things, coding skills, and what else did you mention? Yeah, the second one I said was learning computer forensics techniques. Yeah, again, that's changing as these platforms change and, and these attacks get more and more sophisticated. You know, attacks today, I think you know this and a lot of our listeners know this, but when you put an attack into a sandbox environment, the, the attacker knows that they're listening. Let's go back and look at the attack that Georgia Tech was involved with in 2005. The name is on the tip of my tongue. But once the attackers figured out Georgia Tech engineers that were watching this attack were pre-registering the domain names, what did the attackers do? They immediately went in and changed the encoding on this. It was Conflicker. They immediately went in and changed the encoding. So instead of generating 256 domain names, they went and generated 2,048 domain names a day. And so the, the Georgia Tech guys were like, uh-oh, they know, they saw that we were pre-registering those domains. So they took this out of the equation for us. So that would be a perfect example of, okay, so they're actually watching. You have to think that these attackers today are well-funded. They have all these solutions that your organizations have. They go out and buy Cisco, Palo Alto, you know, Zscaler solutions, whatever. They generate, they create mock networks. And how do we know this? Because when Microsoft releases their patches, the next day we see a big change on the internet. When uh, Snort releases its signature update, the next day on the internet, we see a massive change. Signatures that used to not fire start firing, and signatures that fired before don't fire anymore. So they're making changes to their attacks. They're constantly, and these are teams of people with different skill sets. So think of it, SOC engineers are different skill sets. Developers at different levels, different skills, different mindsets, teaming together to solve this problem. It's like, I think the best solution to think about this, and I, have you ever been to one of those escape rooms? Like in different towns, they have them. I'm sure Atlanta, they have one here and in the Tampa Bay area. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You literally go... You go, you go into the room with a team and then you have to find a way out. Doors locked, and and you got to find the way out. Yeah, you got to yeah. solve puzzles. Yes, yes. I've done yes. that twice with people, and it, the team is really what makes the escape room successful, right? Right. Having different mindsets and different skills because some people can solve a problem, and others look at it and they they're coming at it from the wrong perspective, and they're just stuck. And it's amazing how teams. That's how I look at SOC teams that these organizations need to lead. You need to hire for different people with different skill sets to create that unique team 
that can then go and solve the problem because you're going against attackers that are coming together because they see riches, they see the ability to make a lot of money. Excellent. So you need the knowledge and skills that security engineers bring to the table. You need the competencies that analysts bring to the table. And then the organization should be able to pull them together into very cohesive teams that will develop their own dynamic and, you know, turn out to be very effective based on working together, being exposed to different types of training opportunities, and so on and so forth. Very true. So as you said, the challenge lies in getting folks trained and hired. Tremendous gap out there, shortfall. So under the circumstances, institutions are trying to ramp up their programs. Some are offering certifications, some are offering degrees. Many of the programs are housed in the computer science slash engineering department. Many are housed in the business school. So it, it, it differs from organization to organization. But at the end of the day, when you are producing you know, or you're generating the products who will go on to fill these different roles, what advice do you have for the directors of these cyber security programs, whether it's housed in the business school or it's housed in the engineering school? What advice do you have for them? Number one, and, and Dave, this is why I'm so thankful that you reached out to me because I'm looking forward to the journey of you and I partnering together. So my number one recommendation is partner with corporate America. Find companies that want to give back, that want to partner with you, that want to create a pipeline of communication and work with them to understand and see the problem. You've got the problem is multifaceted. It's, you know, corporate America sees it from one perspective, you know, the universities and business schools and engineering schools see it from a different perspective. They're both right, but they're both wrong. And you got to bring them together to mitigate the wrong and enhance the right and then allow them to be incubating back and forth ideas that help both. I think they can absolutely help both, but we can't take the old approach and just have these separate silos out there working. You actually have to work with corporate America today and have relationships with those SOC teams and have those engineers come and give back and teach back. Use those organizations like uh, B-Sides to come in. Universities like University of South Florida, B-Sides was on that campus that day, this year. Every year, it should be on the campus to encourage students to get plugged into B-Sides. And B-Sides should be encouraging the university to get plugged into it. And businesses need to plug into the university and then find a way to where you guys can work together to solve that common common challenge. I couldn't agree with you more. Means I can't imagine an effective cybersecurity education without industry involvement. There has to be a strong partnership and the training or the learning has to be hands-on plus classroom. It has to go in parallel. Like you said, every institution has their share of challenges. They work through their strengths and constraints. The Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at Duke, it's a new program. They're doing a good job of it. And the CISO of that university, he offers internship opportunities to students, those who are not able to go and work, get internships uh, with, with companies. And he creates different types of projects 
where they get hands-on experience seeing how SOC professionals work. They are probably embedded in those SOC teams uh, doing different things. And the feedback that I've received from many of the students is they've found those to be very enriching. So it is imperative that we are not only partnering to for training, for teaching, but we are also partnering to conduct research because industry brings a certain perspective, a certain very practical, pragmatic view. I'm kind of aligned in that direction. That's why I like to connect with practice more. And the universities do both. They do good theoretical research, which is important, but you also have to translate those theoretical findings into actionable recommendations. So it is really about leveraging the synergies. It's not about you. I'm better than you or you are better than me. It's about we all have our strengths. How do we come together and help each other? Because cybersecurity is a global problem and we have to fight it together as a global team, if you ask me, just like what we are having to do for the pandemic. You just can't leave it to a group or a small network or a, or a certain community. Everybody has to do their part. So I... I couldn't agree with you more, Jim. Well said. Well, well said, Dave. The hands-on capabilities, I didn't mention this to you yesterday when we were talking, but mm -hmm. UNC Pembroke, mm -hmm. uh, University of North Carolina, Pembroke campus, did something that I think all universities should highly consider. They created a SOC that is run primarily by the students. The students are brought in. The cybersecurity students then come in learn the skills as part of their training to protect the organization, to protect the university, to mm -hmm. protect the other students. I think that's brilliant. Right there, now you've got a practical experience. And, and I've seen other universities do this for other things, like University of Tampa, where I got my MBA, has a room dedicated to finance. So you go in there and you study stocks and how the, the trends are stocks. Just do the same thing for a SOC. Now you have students coming in there. The students are doing the research. They're seeing threats on the campus. And then they're researching those threats and reporting them out to the campus leadership. And then they're getting skills and hands-on. And now the university has a, a tool, that SOC, that they can go to industry and say, hey, we have a SOC. We would like to put your tools in there to highlight and then have your leaders from your organization come in and lecture and talk and train and yep. teach about it. And there's your synergy you're talking about right there. Yep. We, we, we need to do that extensively. That's so important. And that reminds me, uh, you know, I get to talk to a lot of cyber training service providers, and I'm sure they all provide great service. One particular uh, service provider that comes to mind is Circadence by Aris. And I was looking at their offering, pretty extensive. They address each of the four or five elements in the NIST framework. And I'm looking at their list of skill sets and knowledge that they try to impart through, through their program. And it's a pretty hands-on gamification-oriented program. It is AI-driven. So essentially, students are learning the skills interactively, and then they are in the battlefield engaging in simulated battles where they're trying to fend off attacks, thwart attacks. And the interesting thing here is if they, during the actual simulation, when they are engaging in defense, if they have to access the tips, the helps, they lose points. So you learn as much as you want, but 
when it is test time, battle time, better you know remember what you learned, or you can talk to your team members and see how well you perform. So I think that's a great model. I'm sure many other service providers do the same. So I just don't want to highlight one and say, you know, this is the best or anything like that. But I'm just putting forward an example that some really good work is happening. It's a matter of institutions stepping out and making the connection. Cisco is an absolute leader. Somebody like you, I'm sure is a highly sought after personnel. And I look forward to partnering with you as well. So, so yeah, this is uh, this is wonderful, wonderful, Jim. I'm, I'm, I'm I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. We are kind of coming towards the end of our program here, so I'd like to um, give you the remaining time to um, sum it up for us. Maybe uh, share some key messages, some final thoughts with the listeners. Final thoughts. That's a that's a big boss of ball right there, isn't it? <laughs> Things are changing all the time, so there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's a lot of places to start to get this information. You can start as simple as basically getting Wireshark and going and finding PCAP files from known attacks and replaying those into Wireshark and looking at the PCAP files. And you can go so far as to you know, get time on a third-party cyber range like Rangeforce and others out there where you're actually working through the different skill sets required uh, for a security operational professional, whatever whatever role you see in your future, and then working through different case analysis. So the world's your oyster, you know, how do you want to tackle that problem? And then where do, you, where do you go from there? There's a lot of ways to, you know, go out and create your own learning journey and start learning and exploring it. And we didn't even cover IoT security, did we? You know, <laughs> Interesting enough, here's a final thought. One of my hobbies is brewing beer, and I was at a friend of mine's manufacturing facility, and they build large-scale brew systems. And I was looking at this keg cleaner, and you plug these kegs into this keg cleaner, and you basically program it, and it starts cleaning these kegs out. And I look down, and I see, wow, that's a piece of technology in that keg cleaner right there. Imagine if I hacked that device, and of course, I went on the internet, looked up that device. It's got a default IP address. Imagine if I hacked that device and coded it so that the last part going into the keg cleaner was the chemical rather than the rinse agent. Can you imagine if they filled that beer container up with beer and there was that chemical in there? People would get sick. You know, it could cause brand awareness problems for that that brewing company. So, IoT security is a huge space that is rapidly coming. And if you look at people from IT trying to get into IoT, they don't understand that IoT is a different mindset. So those two mindsets are trying to come together, but there's that, there's that gap of jumping over and bridging it, and nobody's solved that problem today, and yet the security risks are increasing, increasing, increasing. So I guess that's the best example that I could sign off with is the future of IoT security is a risk to all of us. What an example, and what a way of signing off. That prompts me to say a few words. I apologize if I'm bucking the trend here. I talk about contamination of water supply. And when you give that example, that brings to light how these kinds of contaminations can happen the more digitized we get. And we connect with smart devices everywhere, especially our healthcare sector. 
I've done yep. research research with those organizations, and they are very, very apprehensive, tentative, nervous about the kind of security that these IoT devices come with. And that's a huge vulnerability for them. But from my end, to wrap things up, I'd encourage listeners that there are a variety of roles that you can play in a security operations center. Some are highly technical, some are analytical, and there is the communication aspect. So even if you don't have a technical background, don't let that scare you away. There are needs for motivated people, people who are willing to learn, people who are passionate. So there are some fundamental behavioral traits that will be highly valued. And then the training will provide you with the skill sets. And I want to emphasize here what Jim mentioned several times, it's the mindset. And so at times, if you haven't had any prior engineering, computer science training, that's not necessarily a bad thing because you go in with a very clear head without any kind of biases and you get trained to to learn to think a certain way. And that often is a help. So without taking anything away from the security engineers who do a, you know, who, who play a major role, from the analysts who play a major role, and then there are others from the business side of things who can also be a major contributor. And that role is not to be undermined in any way. So everyone needs to have some level of awareness if we have to really be effective in defending ourselves against the hackers. Again, Jim said, they are constantly on the prowl. They are innovating at a speed that's hard to match. So it's not a battle or a war that we can win, but we have to keep our eyes on the ball and stay as alert as possible. So that's my two cents. But since, Jim, I said you'll have the last word, we still get to have the last word. And after that, <laughs> we'll pack it up. I promise. Well, I loved what you just said right there. The, the different mindsets, back to the escape room analogy we used, that one person coming into that room that may have a philosophy background or may have been an accountant or a lawyer coming in and looking at the problem completely different might be the key to solving that puzzle that gets you out of that escape. So we'll sign off there. I think that's a great way to close out. Thank you very much, Tim, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, Dave. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to James Rissler for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.